David Graham calls pastoral ministry, our senior associate, he calls pastoral ministry the trenches. By that, he's suggesting that all the action happens in a local church, in a local church ministry. Uh, along the way, in the trenches through the years, um, I've run across several things that I thought of this week as we come to this passage. Galatians 4, 21 to 5, 1. Now, we're the kind of church that opens God's book and looks at the words that are here. And so before us this morning is Galatians 4, 21 to 5, 1. And I thought of three things. One, I thought of the privilege, although it is wrenching, to minister to God's people as they die. As they lay dying, uh, the privilege of being next to them and of uh, visiting them uh, is great. Uh, but it's sad and hopeful simultaneously. But one thing that's been a little bit disturbing through the years for me is to get next to God's people uh, who uh, are not unlike you, come in and out each week to worship as we are gathered together. And when they get to the point of their death and ministering to them, seeking to be of a great encouragement, they will say to me, I'm not sure I'm ready to die. I go, what? What? Tell me. I'm not sure if I'm saved. My heart's full of doubt. And I'll begin to explore it with them gently and lovingly. And it's interesting what they tell me. I thought of those who lack such assurance in studying this passage this week. I thought as well of a tendency I've seen in some, notwithstanding being followers of Jesus, to be lacking in joy. Can, can I just say it as overt as that? Uh, Jesus Christ comes to live in us through the washing and regeneration. We're made alive, and the Spirit of God comes to dwell in us. Uh, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. Uh, so then one wonders, if Christ is living within us, where is the joy? Howard Hendricks used to say, you know, a lot in the church look like they've been weaned on pickle juice, you know, and uh, he, when he said it, I thought it was funny, uh, but uh, <laughs> he was arguing that the, uh, the sour faces we have around, and I'm not talking about some Lawrence Welk joy, you know, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. We all, we live in a broken world. Everything's not all wonderful. Here we're praying for Dave Hammers, who uh, is in the hands of our Lord uh, this morning. Uh, but yet, in the midst of our world, Christ's character forged in us, we can have joy. Do we? How could it be? Isn't it an oxymoron to be a joyless Christian? And then I thought of uh, this week, uh, I follow a guy on Twitter called Lloyd Legalist, and uh, it's a parody. It's, uh, he just says funny stuff that a legalist would say. Uh, being judgmental on everybody and passing out, hey, you're supposed to do this and don't do that and being critical of those who don't do it right according to Lloyd Legalis's mentality. Uh, but I thought of that this week as I looked at this passage. And all three of those things are going to come together in the end, which makes this practical. But before we get to the end, you may say to yourself, what in the world 
is Paul doing discussing this Old Testament story, and why does it have anything to do with me? How does this history of Abraham relate to my life? I have to go back to college this week, and ah, we're trying school, and I'm teaching, and it's some weeks in, some weeks out, and COVID makes everything a hot mess, and you're up there talking about Abraham and Sarah, and you're up there talking, this is the word of God, profitable for instruction and correction and training in righteousness. So here we are, Galatians chapter 4. Let me read it to you, and then I'll share the plan of attack, and we'll go after it with all of our might. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Galatians 4.21. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law... Do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. Now, listen for the vocabulary of slavery and the vocabulary of freedom. Paul is calling them to the freedom of grace. Verse 23. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. And she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. So also it is now. Sidebar just for a moment. He's using verse 29 to explain the conflict in the Galatian church. Those who were born according to the Spirit were being persecuted by those who wanted to use the law to justify our existence before God. Back to verse 30. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, I want to go three different directions this morning. One, I want us to look at the back story. Until we get this history, we won't understand why he meticulously uses this analogy to make this story live in our age. Secondly, I want to watch him joust with the leaders. You see, the false teachers who were perverting the gospel used the story of Hagar and Ishmael to teach their wrong doctrine and get people off track. So Paul just turns the tables and he explains actually what this story is to represent and how it celebrates grace. And finally then, we'll come back to where we started. Why does this matter? It matters for the three issues, to face the three issues that 
I talked about as we began. So first, what's the backstory? You can't appreciate what Paul's doing unless you look at verse 24. Now, in 24, there's a word. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. Now, you've got to be very careful with that word. That's the English word that represents the term that Paul used as he wrote in the original. Uh, now, I, you don't want to read the Bible allegorically. You say, well, hey, isn't that what Paul said? He said we interpret it allegorically. For example, there's a gate in the city of Jerusalem called the Water Gate. Uh, there was a famous message preached, as you can imagine, in the 70s during the Nixon administration from the Bible, from the book of Nehemiah on Watergate and how God had foresaw Watergate. That's a fanciful way to read the Bible. Uh, Origen got the early church off track reading the Bible allegorically. He said there's a fleshly reading. That's kind of the surface reading. Then there's a uh, uh, you know, the, 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 there's a reading underneath that that's more full. You had the bones. Then, then, then there's the whole bodied reading and uh, the spirit of it all. And, and only the super spiritual could get down there. All he did was mess up the plain sense of the text. If scripture, uh, when scripture makes common sense, we seek no other sense. Or you wander off into nonsense, it is said. Uh, so, uh, we read the Bible uh, and take the words at face value. So, so the, 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 we're going to watch a discussion. They're going to say, hey, we use Genesis 21. And Paul says, let me explain Genesis 21 to you. And you'll never use it like that again because you're messing up the clear road and invitation of grace to come into Graceland and stay here forever. And then finally... Eric, why do these ideas about the gospel matter? They affect our assurance, our joy, and our stability. And that's where we'll end. So first, what's the backstory? God promised Abraham that the Lord himself would do the saving. There are three subpoints here. This is the first. God promised Abraham that the Lord himself would do the saving. Genesis 17, 6, after he had promised in Genesis 12, get up and leave Ur, the Chaldees. I'll give you a son. It'll be a great nation. I'll give you a land and I'll bless you. Land, seed, and blessing. Well, it was years later in Genesis 17 that God appears to him again. And here's what he says. And notice the way he frames it. I will, this is God to Abraham. I, this is Genesis 17, 6. I will give you a son. I will. Notice the actor is God. The one who's going to act to save Abraham, give him a future and a hope, is God. His future and a hope was not solely dependent upon what Abraham was going to do. No, what is accented is God acting. I will, the actor is God, give you a son. The actor is going to be God. In fact, the author of the book of Hebrews in Hebrews eleven twelve 12 notes that Abraham's an old man. Let's don't give him a lot of credit in fact, the text has an unusual phrase. He's as good as dead. <laughs> He's going to father a son. Really, it's, it, it, it seems preposterous. We have uh, Sarah, who uh, clearly, if you'll let me use this term, is postmenopausal. Uh, she's north of 85 years old, and she's going to have a son. They wait around for the promise. They wait around for the promise. They wait around for the promise. Sarah, when she hears about it, laughs. She, she, 
laughs in credulity. You know, it, it, it sounded preposterous to her. But Isaac came, please note, and this is the point that he's making, and this is an important point, the idea. Isaac came not because Abraham and Sarah were virile and fertile and of childbearing age. In fact, nobody would have bet on Abraham and Sarah. Their hope rested singularly in what God had promised. It wasn't about their effort, but what God had promised. And you can't really appreciate this, what the author of the book of Hebrews calls so great a salvation, unless you understand it's not about effort. It's about the act of God to save us. Now, second subpoint in this story is that Abraham tried to save himself. Waiting around for the promise of God is not easy. In fact, I am confident I am confident that there are people here this morning who are waiting around for God to show up. They believe his promise, and in their spirit they're saying, God, what gives? I'm praying. I'm yielding myself to you. What's going on? I don't get it. Well, Abraham and Sarah have been where we are. That's where they are. And so they're trying to figure this out. And Sarah concludes in Genesis 16, verse 2, she says to Abraham, The Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. There was an Egyptian lady that lived in their household. Her name was Hagar, a young handmaiden for Sarah. And Sarah persuades Abraham to go into Hagar. And they thought, fulfill the promise through our own means. By the way, it never works out well if we think we have a better idea than God. Uh, the, 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 the age, the greatest question of the age is yet this morning, has God really said? What did God say? He said, I'll give you a son. And so Abraham tried to achieve through the flesh, I know, all father a son through Hagar, what God had promised to bring about. Now, here's the point. God does not need our help to save us. He does that himself. And saving is his speciality. And he's really good at it. I have a friend, a wonderful friend. I love a guy. And uh, made a lot of money. And with that money came all the indulgences and... Uh, was working really hard to ruin his life. And God saved him. And by his grace came to repentance. And he would look back on his life and he would have some sense of lament as he was walking with Christ. And I got in the car with him one day and he said, he just wanted to start right there. And he didn't want to have any pretense and pretend to be anything. He said, I want you to know that I was a great sinner. And I said, Dick, I want you to know that Jesus is a great Savior. That's what he does. He does the saving. It's not because we do the right kind of living. That's not how you are saved. It's a gift given by God. So here is Abraham, and he tried to save himself. It didn't seem to be working out, going God's way. By the way, there's a way that seems right to a man, the end thereof, the ways of death. It seemed right to Abraham and Sarah to try to figure this out on their own and through their own fleshly means achieve uh, the promise of hope in a son. 
But God doesn't need our help to save us. Uh, think of Titus 3.5. I love those three words. That's about all you need to understand New Testament theology. He saved us. That's it. See, Eric, I want to understand the New Testament. Just get those three words. He saved us. It's about what God does. Notice, it's not us acting. We're the us. We're the objects. Remember eighth grade grammar? I don't remember too much of it either. I got it later, you know, backwards, trying to go through Spanish conjugations. But uh, the, the, the subject, he, the action, saves, saved. The object, the recipient of the action, us. So our role is to open our hands and receive the gift of God. It's not according to to our righteous deeds, which we have done. Well, he saved us, period. By the way, have you ever tried to be God Jr. and save yourself in situations? Uh, let us learn from Abraham to lean into the promise of God and rest in him. Now, self-salvation project, third sub-point under number one, this backstory, self-salvation project never worked out well. How'd that work out to, uh, in his own flesh, achieve the end of having a son? Well, uh, that worked out like this. The last 5,000 years, the Arabs have fought with uh, Isaac's sons uh, forever. And uh, they, 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 one fighting with the other, the other fighting with the other. Conflicts, wars, killings, disputes, all stems from Abraham's attempt to save himself. Grew up with a neighborhood boy called Timothy Gibson. And uh, Timothy had two big old trees in his front yard. And he started building a treehouse right next to the road. It was a hot mess of a treehouse. We'd all get in it. It's a wonder we all didn't die just collapsing. You know, it was terrible. And, but he, it was his project, and he was doing it. And, oh, he was so proud of it. And he'd work very hard. He'd build this room, and he'd build another room. And if the first room didn't look bad enough, the next room looked worse. And you do that about, I mean, it, it just was a conflagration of this and that. And uh, it eventually all collapsed. So do every one of our self-salvation projects. Abraham's collapsed, and we have this struggle. Our involvement in our salvation to get it done is not helpful. It's a pitch away from understanding the gospel. Us doing anything, it takes away from freedom and takes us down the road of bondage. Because when have we done enough? When is it sufficient? Augustus Toplady had it so right in saying, writing that line, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling, that line out of the rock of ages. Now, that's the backstory. Now, let's watch how it is used. Uh, let's consider the meat of Paul's argument and thinking here. Why this analogy? What's the Apostle Paul's argument? Verse 21, he begins by saying, oh, okay, you like the law? Are you, I mean, do you really like the law? How much do you like the law? Are you now living up to all the law's obligations? And any honest person who would have looked at himself would have said, no, I'm not. And he would say, well, how comes you're trafficking in calls to follow the law? You're living under the bondage of the law. Remember, the Galatian issue was circumcision. You had a group of people who said, Tell you what, you want to get all the way home to be saved, you've got to be circumcised. Now, what it was was the struggle to understand what do we do with all these Gentile people considered by Jewish people to be pagans, 
what do we do with these pagans who come to place their faith in Christ? How do we get them in? And to them, it just didn't seem like they had Abraham, the great promises of God. They had Moses, who 430 years after the promises got the law. And Paul's been discussing the purpose of the law, our tutor that brings us to Christ, our tutor that wakes us up to our need for him. And, and so the, the Galatians are scratching their heads saying, okay, a number of pagans have come to place their faith in Christ, but how do we put them in God's family? I mean, we're, we're Jewish. Think of the honor that Jewish people took up in being Jewish. Uh, there is uh, scarcely, uh, uh, scarcely a group of people in God's varied family of different ethnic groups that take more honor in their ethnicity than Jewish people. By the way, you know there's only 14 million of them on earth? That's, that's a lot more people in New York City than there are Jewish people who live in the world. Can you believe what they've accomplished? It's absolutely extraordinary. Unbelievable. It makes sense out of the thought that uh, I will bless you because God has certainly equipped them. Just, just extraordinary stuff. But they were very proud of being Jewish. Remember John the Baptist said, Repent! The kingdom of heaven is at hand. They said, repent. We don't need to repent. We are Abraham's children. Remember? He said, don't you think just because you have Abraham's blood that you're going to be okay? Because to them, it was all about, hey, we're in the bloodline of Abraham. That's the haymaker of God's blessing. We're, we're way okay with God. This is Jesus' point when he's discussing with Nicodemus, the Jewish teacher, he told Nicodemus, don't marvel that I've told you you must be born again. That which is born of the flesh, those natural bloodlines are fine. That's flesh. But that which is born of the spirit is the spirit. And except a man be born of the spirit, he will not enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not about bloodlines. It's about the blood of Jesus Christ applied to everyone who would receive him as Savior. And that's an expression of the grace of God in Christ. What do we bring? Empty hands. The only thing we bring to Christ is our sin and culpability for hell. And he offers us forgiveness in the hope of eternal life, in the free gift of salvation. So what, what's, what's their argument? What's Paul's? Here's how the false teachers are using the Isaac Ishmael story. The false teachers use the Isaac Ishmael story to say that Jewish Christians, to them, represented by Isaac, you know, they were the insiders, the purebloods, had the advantage over Gentile Christians, that's Hagar's Ishmael, who needed circumcision, a human effort, in order to get in the family of God. So, yeah, you believe the promise of God, but plus get you some circumcision, then you'll be in. Because they would argue, now, remember who was excluded? Who was thrown out? Why, it was Hagar, the Egyptian handmaiden, and her son, Ishmael. They were pushed out. And the false teachers were saying, hey, we're generous. Look, we're letting them in. But here's how we're letting them in. Oh, think about Abraham, the great promises. Think about the law of God came 430 years later. Yeah, you can come in to God's family, but here's what you have to do to come in. Oh, believe the promise. That's good. That's good. That's good stuff. Be circumcised. All you men line up, be circumcised. Then we'll all live in one big happy family. And Paul is saying, when you teach that, 
you are perverting grace. And you are diminishing the glory of what God has given us. Here's how Paul is arguing. It's like two fencers. You see, this is their elevator speech. This is the debate. This is coming before the jury for the closing argument. This is how they are using the false teachers. Genesis 21. Paul steps to the lectern and says this. You have misread the scripture. By the way, Martin Luther said the way to understand scripture is to use scripture to understand scripture. He calls it the analogy of faith. We interpret the less clear with the more clear, and we use the Bible to interpret the Bible. What's going on in Galatians 4? Mounts, it's just these big ideas. What, what's going on here? What is going on is Paul is using the Scripture to interpret the Scripture. And here's what he says. The Apostle Paul turns the table, uses the same Isaac Ishmael story to say that the promise of God came by grace, Isaac, not by human effort, Ishmael. Where did Ishmael come from? Ishmael came through a conspiracy that Abraham struck with his wife to get to the promise of God through the flesh. That is, Abraham would father a child through Hagar and get to that promise through his own effort. But Isaac was a child of promise. Nobody would have bet on Abraham and Sarah having a baby at 90. Even Sarah wasn't buying it. Uh, while it says Abraham staggered not at the promise of God, uh, it could be said Sarah laughed at the promise of God. What are you kidding? This is preposterous. What? I will have pleasure that will bring me unto childbirth? Are you kidding me at my age? This is ridiculous. So it was an act of God that gave Isaac as a fulfillment of the promise. It was an act of the flesh that gave Ishmael as a way to circumvent what God had promised and get there on our own. And Paul uses it to say, let's keep the gospel clear and keep the gospel about the grace of God and not our human effort. And circumcision as a human effort to get into the family of God has no place in gospel Christianity because it is not based on what we do but what God has already accomplished in Christ. What did we bring to Good Friday? Sin and culpability to hell. Christ brought the righteousness of God offered as a perfect lamb. Then he rose from the dead and in God's action in Christ we can come to be saved. Now, why does that matter? What difference does that make? Well, it makes three differences. Let's talk about it. Why does this argument in Galatians 4 matter? Galatians is a fascinating book full of like some high ideas, but they really matter because when you die first, I want you to die with a heart full of faith and full assurance of hope. Why does this argument in Galatians 4? This is a great boost to our assurance. Our salvation is not up to us. Look at verse 23. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free wo woman was born according to the promise. Look at verse 28. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. You could write in the margin here, 
Jesus saves. When we are drawing our last breaths, I want us to be anxious for glory. I've not only been around people who were doubting and wondering about whether or not they were saved, and they're thinking thoughts like this. Did I believe right? Did I say the prayer right? By the way, have you ever seen Jesus pray with anybody to receive salvation? Where's that? Okay, Luke, the parable, there's one parable. God be merciful to me, a sinner. That's as close as you get, but that guy was off by himself, wasn't he, in the story? But anyway, some people, oh, I don't know if I prayed right. What do you mean you don't know if you prayed right? It's not about praying right. I don't know if I've, I've obeyed enough. I don't know if I've witnessed enough. I don't know if, if I've been a good Christian enough. All of us are sinners. And then we come to be saved. And then we're sinners. We just repent faster. Isn't that true? When you get ready to die, I want you to be like Carl Hart. He was a pastor of Grand Ledge Baptist Church for a number of years in Lansing, Michigan. It would be years after he was there that I came in 1989, served for six years. And he got pancreatic cancer and died quickly, and I was visiting him. And I've never visited anyone like him. I will never forget it. I said, Carl, just, hey, it's me and you. Tell me what's going on in your heart. He said, well, he said, I can't wait. He said, all my life, I've told people to throw their hope on Jesus. And he said, I am right on the cusp of realizing the very thing that all my life I told other people to do. And he said, I'm really excited. He did not have a death wish. He lamented his suffering. But he died a man's heart full of hope. And he wasn't leaning on, I've been a pastor, and I've been faithful through the years, and I've been in that hospital visiting, and I obeyed, and I prayed, and I did my devotions. And I... He was leaning on Jesus, knew himself to be merely and only a sinner in need of the grace of God, but he had laid hold of it, and his heart couldn't have been more full of assurance because he wasn't leaning into his own flesh and what he had done. But he was leaning on what Christ had done and relying in the perfections of Jesus offered in a perfect sacrifice that brings everyone who will take him unto salvation and full assurance of hope. So we walk around with a heart boosted full of assurance. Not because we're great at being a Christian. I'm not. Jesus is great at being a Savior. And our confidence is in him. And we can die with high confidence that he keeps his promises. And we don't have to go for an out around to try to figure out, well, how can I save myself? That doesn't work out. Secondly, this is a great boost. Oh, by, by the way, um, our team meets every Tuesday as a leadership team here at Calvary. We try to run after people and keep our finger on the pulse and figure out what's going on and stay with it. And then after that meeting, I will often follow up and and dissimilar to places I've been before, they use a lot of texting here, and, and I've certainly been full of email for years. Uh, but I'll, I'll inquire, hey, what about this? We talked about this. Where are we this week? And I'll get a text with four letters back, and it's just fantastic. I love it. It's one of my favorite texts I get. It just says, done. Done. 
Do you realize that's what Jesus said on Good Friday? He said, done. Well, he said it like this. It is finished. The debt has been paid. And because it's done, you and I can rest. Because grace is that good. We can get in the hammock and grace land, and come what may, nothing will alter what Christ has accomplished already because it's done and finished. And we have great hope. But secondly, we have great joy. This is a boost to our joy. Paul says in verse 21, do you really want to live under the law's demands? There they sat in the yoke of bondage. The Pharisees had given, what was it, 452 commands to do. There they sat, just burdened down. And Jesus stood up in the middle of in the middle of the feast, and he says, come unto me, all of you who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, not theirs, not the law's yoke. The law's yoke will take you right in the ground, bury you. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And you shall find what for our souls? Rest. But not only rest, joy. Joy. It's over. It's settled. It's finished. It's secured. Isn't that a basis of true, enduring joy? That's joy through cancer. That's joy through COVID, messing around with a family member. That's joy through death. That's joy through job loss. Because nothing about those circumstances changes what God has done. Are you a joyful Christian? Why not? Who can marshal an argument against joy in the face of such a sufficient Savior? Finally, this is a great boost to our vigilance. Look at verse 1 of chapter 5. It's the command that he's worked to all through these verses. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Here's the command. Stand firm, therefore. Stand right here in this freedom. Stand firm for freedom. Don't ever check out a graceland. Scripture teaches us we are not only saved by grace, we are sanctified. We grow up by grace. Some of us think we are saved by grace, but we stay saved by keeping the law. Now, by the way, he's going to talk about freedom, so, so don't just completely check out. That's coming in 513, and he'll get there, how to use our freedom. But we are not saved by keeping, we, are not, we don't stay saved by keeping the law. Now, grace does have an effect upon us. Remember John Newton said, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. Where would we be if it weren't for the grace of God and Christ we have to be vigilant to stay away from legalism and performances for God. I need to do this so I'll feel better about my relationship with God because he'll like me better. I need to do this so I can uh, get some brownie points with God and, 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 and get into his good graces. I want you to know you can't be penetrated more deeply into God's graces than you are right now if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior. It comes with the life he's given. But legalism is always a threat and retracting like a turtle's head into the shell of I'll keep the law and feel better about myself it takes vigilance to stay in grace and that's what's called for right here how about you is that where you are this morning our son's an IT director at a surgical hospital that a bunch of doctors started 
about 20 years ago, and it's taken off like a wild weed, and there are 300 employees there now, and he broods over the digital infrastructure, and everything they do there, especially after Obamacare, everything's embedded digitally, and all the records and all the functions for all the machines are all digital, and it's and you got to stay with it, and you got to change out technology all the time and watch what's going on and what's functioning. And I said, I asked him recently, I said, Caleb, how are you doing at work? He says, well, he says, uh, doing, uh, doing good, but I must be vigilant. Must be vigilant. I go, well, what do you mean? He goes, well, if I'm not careful and if I'm inattentive, leaking in around the edges will be problems that uh, I just have pushed away. But when I'm vigilant, everything runs just the way it should run. That's what's going on here. Let me close talking about joy in this quote from Isaiah 54 and ask you about where your heart is this morning. I mean, really, let's just take inventory. Joyful or not, yes or no. He quotes Isaiah. He's trying to paint a picture. He's thinking to himself, and God moves Isaiah to use this picture. The pictures of a barren woman who comes to have a child. Infertility is uh, a quiet pain that is actually devastating. It often can come with grief that is unknown in uh, miscarriages that are not told. And um, maybe you're going through carnage this morning. I want you to know the Lord is near. Isaiah 54 talks about a picture of joy that's a woman who could not have a baby, who's given the opportunity to have a baby and has a baby, and the change from one to the other is extraordinary. And he's arguing that God brings this about, Sarah, Isaac, and when it happens, it is so extraordinarily joyful. Our second son and his wife have had difficulty conceiving, been at it for years, began to think, well, maybe this won't happen. Uh, Ten weeks from now, they are slated to have a little boy. Going to name him Samuel, of course, for this child will pray. Uh, they're now pregnant. It's so fun to be around them right now because they're, they're giddy with joy. I mean, he, he's a sophisticated litigator in employment law, but he and his wife could not be more joyful now because God did something that brought them from one place that they had no escape from to a place where they're not going to have a baby. And that's getting a little ridiculous. I mean, we called them, we got a video the other night from them. Um, you know, there's no showers and whatever COVID is, and people are sending a few gifts. And somebody sent them this extraordinary gift of a stroller that you jog behind. So we got a video, and I don't know, it's, there's a little hallway at their house. <laughs> the video is a bin running up and down the hallway, you know, this thing. And, and it's just silly. And you think, well, what's going on? It, it is two people who could not be more joyful about what God has done. Is any of that in your heart about what God has done in Christ? Where would we be if it were not for grace? Let's open our hearts to the Lord as we close. Father, Shape our disposition, our assurance, our joy, and our posture toward the law and toward grace with your word. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.